Merry Christmas, everybody. Everyone waiting for the big day when Santa squeezes down the chimney. Cookies are left in the living room. Chocolate chip, of course, because who likes sugar cookies? If Santa does not like sugar, Linda and Jody, Santa does not like sugar cookies on Christmas. He wants chocolate milk and chocolate chip cookies and Ben and Jerry's fish food. P-H-I-S-A food sitting there waiting for because he is so busy working on delivering those presents that he has lost so much weight and by the end of the evening he needs more of that chocolate chip cookies. We all live in, in anticipation, don't we? We can't wait to, wait a minute, where are the kids in here? Uh, oh, okay. Can't wait till you move out of the house. Do you drive yet? Can't wait to drive. Oh, man. Can't wait to drive. Can't wait to move out of the house. Can't wait to get a job. Can't wait to get over your job. Can't wait to retire. Can't wait till the next. Is there anybody satisfied with now? Really? Because you're retired? Were you were you satisfied when you were before you got to retire? What's after retirement? By the way, I have no idea. What is retirement? There's no retirement in the Bible. Is anyone satisfied with the here and now? I think mostly not. Some people think that life is so terrible that uh, they can't wait till Jesus comes. Right? How many? How, how long have we been hearing that? Ever since. Ever since uh, I can remember, ever since I was a believer that Jesus was going to come, some people have actually prophesied. There's a guy, I forget what his name is, in San Francisco prophesied uh, three times the date of the coming of Jesus. People have been doing that for a long time. One religion, I forget which one it was, said that they knew when Jesus was coming and that when that day uh, uh, appeared and Jesus didn't come, they said, well, it was a spiritual coming, right? Uh, Peter was also making some comment because the people in those days were thinking that Jesus was coming, the Messiah was coming, and they were kind of, uh, uh, probably what's the word, uh, looking down on believers for thinking that Jesus was going to come again. Ah, where is the promise of his coming? So here's this passage in Second Peter. Do not let this one fact escape you, escape your notice, beloved, that the that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow, but is patient, uh, slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I'm glad that Jesus did not come before 1962. I'm glad that Jesus didn't come before you uh, put your trust in him and there were many people in, probably from every generation do you realize that Adam and Eve were waiting for the Messiah when they gave birth to the of course they had sinned and they ate off the tree that was a, was a, was a chocolate chip cookie tree it was not an apple tree it was a chocolate chip cookie tree and uh, 
that when they were going to have a son, they said, we have gotten a, a man from the Lord, and you could actually possibly translate it, even the Lord, that they were thinking that the, now the Redeemer would come because he was promised. Every generation from Adam and Eve is waited for the coming of the Messiah. God's people from every generation waited for the Messiah to rid them of what? Their problems, the enemies. And here we are in America still waiting for the Jesus to come, but he did not come the way they expected. And here we are thinking at this first generation and they're waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And what he, he didn't do what they expected. He came as a child, as a baby. It can't be, it can't be, it can't be as a baby. And then when he, and even the disciples, when, when he said, when are you going to, John the Baptist, when are you going to set up the kingdom? Are we supposed to look for somebody else? Or are you the one? They didn't want Jesus to come and die. They didn't expect that, totally unexpected. And they should have, they should have known that, because, but they didn't know scripture. They didn't know as much as, it's, you know, for us, it's easy to look, you know, 2020 is hindsight, right? You know, we see everything. We can look back and say, oh, this is what they missed. This is what. We would have missed the same thing. Exactly. And they weren't ready for the child to come. They weren't ready for Christmas. In the past, I have given you two passages uh, about the proximate time of the coming and uh, the death of Messiah. And I've given them so many times. Does anybody remember what they are? The two that I, that I, well, can you remember the one that I always talk about? About the dating of the death of the Messiah? Does anybody remember? There you go. Anybody else remember that? What'd she say? <laughs> Daniel 9. When I first became a believer, I took this passage, and I told you this a million, but I'm not going to tell you this anymore after tonight. So I went to the rabbi and I said, Rabbi, I found a passage about the Messiah. Uh, I found a passage and I would like to t read it to you and ask you if I have interpreted this correctly. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, and I'm not going to read it for you, but I'm just to say it is very specific about the, the coming of the Messiah and his death. And it basically says that from a certain commandment given by uh, ne uh, Artic uh, Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2 483 years later the Messiah will come and he will die so I, I read this passage to the rabbi I said I need to know the other side I need to know the other side what is the other side What is because we all have other sides you ever sit and have a talk with a, a Republican and a Democrat and watch them no one understands the other side they don't they just argue and they fight no one understands their, their other side I needed to know the other side the rabbi said yeah I've interpreted it correctly what you've got to be kidding I have well is Jesus Messiah he wouldn't answer the second passage is not is, is a little bit more vague and that's Genesis chapter 49 verse uh, 10 this is the this is uh, Jacob as he's blessing his sons and basically what he says is there will always be a king in Israel until the Messiah comes when was the last king of Israel yeah when well 70 AD when the temple was destroyed the nation was torn apart that was the end Messiah came before 70 AD 
Okay, so those are the two. Now I'm going to get, be more specific and give you some other ones. Um, and these, and by the way, you have an insert. Uh, a matter of fact, my, I found my Bible in, uh, in my office this morning. I was showing it to some of the guys. In it, uh, it probably my first or second Bible, and in it is a handwritten thing of 35 prophecies. I have copied that, and I gave it to you some years back, and I'm going to give it to you again. It's in your bulletin. There are 35 prophecies, and there are a lot more of the first prophecies that I have, and I think you need to know these or have access to them. So here is this other passage. Uh, we know about Jesus' death, a very specific, but how about his birth? Uh, can anybody remember? Uh, I'll throw this out. Who, who knows where the passage is found in the Old Testament? We're not any no New Testament stuff here. Old Testament, where uh, the prophecy concerning Jesus' birth in the place of his birth. Where is it? No, you're close. Nope. Old Testament. Micah. Micah 5.2. I'm going to read it for you. Oh, was it on the board? Or did you <laughs> and they missed it. Okay, good. As for you, Bethlehem, wow, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go, go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So is he talking about any king? What is the nature of of the one who comes to, uh, that is going to come out of Bethlehem. What is his nature? Well, first of all, he's going to be the ruler, so he's going to be king, and his goings forth. In other words, he is going to be a person of eternity, from long ago into eternity. What he's saying is that the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son, the, the, the son of God who is eternal, is coming to this earth to be born in Bethlehem. A person of eternity comes out of Bethlehem. How about, how about the method of Jesus' death? Psalm 22. There's several of them. For, uh, this is the Psalm of David, and you're reading it, and you're just thinking about David, and all of a sudden, he pulls these strings. It's like he's talking about himself. It seems that you would think, and then all of a sudden, he opens up the curtain, and he says this. The dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones, and they look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Hmm, interesting passage, isn't it? Zechariah 12.10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. That's a prayer. So that they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over the firstborn. So here is a description in these two passages about hands being pierced and feet being pierced. And what kind of a execution do we know that that looks like? Crucifixion. 
So the first passage in, in Psalms is written. When did David write? Does anybody know when David lived? Not this David. Sorry, David. Um, a thousand years before Christ. Do you realize that the um, that the Persian uh, in uh, that the Persians invented crucifixion? Do you know when they invented it? Between 300 and 400 B.C. And David's writing a thousand years. How does he know? And by the way, if he's in Jerusalem, how did how did what how did they execute people in Jerusalem? They stoned him. We read all we read that in the Bible all the time. The woman taken in adultery. They were going to stone her. They were going to take out and stone people. But not this guy. Not this God is going to come in and they're going to crucify him. Then, of course, and I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's long, but we will talk about it a little bit later. And that is the most important part is the purpose of the crucifixion. Okay? And we'll put that on the board and we'll just leave that for a little while. I th did I? Yeah, there it is. It's hard to read anyway, but we'll be, go over that in a bit. If you still happen to be unconvinced that the baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is... Uh, is just is not an ordinary person let me challenge you uh, about the odds this cannot be a regular person a number of years ago a guy by the name of Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book called Science Speaks and the book is based on the science the, the probability uh, uh, the science of probability and it sets out the odds of any man in history fulfilling only eight of the 60 prophecies uh, fulfilled by the life of Christ. The probability of Jesus of Nazareth could um, uh, fulfilled even eight such prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Does anyone know what, what that looks like? That's one with 17 zeros on did I put that thing on there with a zero sign? I probably didn't 17 17 zeros behind it so Stoner claims that um, if you took there was a that, that would be enough silver dollars if you probably some of you have heard this before if you covered the whole state of Texas with it would cover two feet deep the whole state of Texas anybody driven through the state of Texas it takes forever to get through the state of Texas yeah it's huge so, if you're in if you're in Dallas, and you uh, are heading out in any direction, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, this person would able to pick out on his first attempt a marked silver dollars. That's how impossible it would be for Jesus to have only fulfilled six of those hundreds of prophecies. Wow. So, so the real question isn't. Uh, uh, is, 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 is Jesus the most logical explanation of the facts? Who else would fit this? It could be, it, it could actually, it could actually happen. One person could actually do it, but the odds are, are, uh, are incredible. You know, it, it's, it is possible uh, that one person could, would actually do that. It's like the lottery. You know, uh, the, you know what the odds of winning the lottery are? You know, one in 200, well, maybe it's 300 million now. But it, it's possible that someone can win the lottery. So, um, so 
here's a guy named Alvin Platinga. He ought to read some of this stuff. It's interesting. He gives this illustration. Let's say that, and you've, I, I've, I've, I've shared this with you before. Let's say that you're playing poker. Oh, I forgot. Christians don't gamble. So forget that. So, no, just suppose you were playing poker, for, not for money. And there's a guy who deals himself four aces 20 times in a row. Okay? Not that four aces, the other four aces. There we go. Now, some of you don't know who the four aces are, but... So, as his companions are reaching for their guns, and, and he says, I know this looks suspicious, but there is an infinite succession of universes that where this is possible and you've heard of the string, string theory that there's multiple universes and we just happen to be in the one universe where I can uh, deal out uh, uh, 20 times four aces uh, and I'll tell you what uh, I don't think there would be con I convinced that argument doesn't have any effect upon these people, though it's possible, but it is so unreasonable that it happens that they take out their gun and they shoot the guy. No, they, they, no, they didn't. They know he cheated. It is the most reasonable thing to think that he cheated. Well, wait. You could say that Jesus cheated, too. I have a friend, I think, hopefully he'll be in church next, next week. He thinks Jesus was a magician. That he, you know, what was I saw on the internet? Somebody, oh, no, it was a commercial about the, the guy who breaks this glass thing and then he builds a boat out of, you know, with, you've seen that one when he walks on water? And so let's just say that Jesus built himself a glass, a glass bottom thing that he put in the, when he walked on the water. Well, first of all, he'd have to invent the glue. He'd have to invent glass. And so this, this or you know, the joke was, uh, Jesus knew where the rocks were in the water. So you're, you know, it's, just, it's, it's impossible. And all the miracles. So if he cheated, he would have to make himself fit the prophecies. Okay, so let's just think about it. But Jesus has no power over the time of his birth. He has no power over the prophecy in Daniel. He can't... His, his parents can say, hey, you know what, I think it's getting time. Let's run to Jerusalem and see if this fits. First of all, his parents would have to know the prophecy. They would have to know the time of his birth. They would have to know the place of his birth. By the way, they would ha how, do you, how do you manipulate your genealogy? Because Jesus has to be born in the line of David, right? He has to be born in the line of kings. Now, did you know that Jesus' genealogy is recorded twice in the New Testament? Once in the book of Luke and once in the book of uh, Matthew? And actually, it's really kind of funny because they're different. They're the same, and when they get to King David, or uh, then all of a sudden the line splits. One through Solomon who is the king and the second and then it splits off to Nathan who is has the right to be the Messiah and they split they come back together in Mary and Joseph interesting then he would have to manipulate he would have to cheat a way to find himself to get crucified now there is a thing that I want to plan let's just kill myself and then what am I gonna do how do I cheat death 
how do I manipulate the resurrection? How can I fake a resurrection? And so when you read the story about Jesus' death, um, the Romans were going to break his legs and they didn't because they knew he was dead. And so here's this guy who is just uh, incredibly wounded to the point they think he's dead. They put him in a grave for three days and then he comes out smelling like a rose. Was there a nurse or doctor locked in that place that they... No. No, he died. And you've heard me say this, and, but there's one important person. Is there's a guy by the name of James. Do you know who James is? James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and he was not a believer in Jesus while he was alive. So if Jesus dies, he's going to say, oh, my brother's dead, my half-brother's dead, and I'm really sorry. I didn't believe in him. I knew he was a fake. I knew he was, he was, he was a good guy, but he was an you know, incredible guy, very moral and all that, but he couldn't be the Messiah. So what happens that James becomes a believer after his death. After his death, only one thing, the resurrection. What can account for the rise in the first century of this early church? So normally what happens if the leader dies and people say, oh, you know, and the apostles, what happened to them after Jesus died? What did they do? They went home. They gave up. Three days later, something happened. And then what happened in the first century? The rise of this early church based upon, what did they proclaim? The early church proclaim? Do they proclaim uh, the, the ethics of Jesus and the moral teachings of Jesus? No. They claimed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now I want to look at the purpose of his death recorded 700 years before he was born. In Judaism, there's this paradox because some Orthodox Jews didn't know how to figure out this paradox because they expected Jesus, the Messiah, to come as king, right? We know that. Even the, everyone thought that, even in the, the, the writings in the New Testament. They were confused. They didn't understand that. So they had, a, they had two Messiahs in Orthodox, some Orthodox settings. Messiah ben David, and why would they name him Messiah? By the word Ben means son, Messiah, son of David. And why would they call David? Because David's the king. So Messiah, the son of the king. And then Messiah Ben Joseph, son of Joseph. And what's significant about Joseph? That's Joseph in, the, in, 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 in Genesis. Because he's the suffering son. He's the one who, matter of fact, if you look at the life of Joseph, it's he's it's, there's kind of a picture of the resurrection. He's persecuted by his brothers, Israel. Uh, he's put in a pit, left to die, and then he raises from the dead and goes and rules over Egypt. So, uh, there's a, so they had this idea that there's two, there's two messiahs. Um, so what's the purpose of the suffering of the messiah? This is Isaiah 53. By the way, how many know Isaiah... 
have Isaiah 53 logged in, not necessarily what it all means, but you know where this passage is and you know how important it is. How many just say, I, this is an most, one of the most important passages that I need to know. It is an incredible passage. Isaiah 53, it ought to be, that, that address should be locked in your brain. And here's part of it. Who has believed our message? And to whom has, uh, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So this is a, an incredible question and it has possible, some possible answers. Um, why, do, why don't people believe the report? Who has believed this report about the Messiah? Well, some people don't like to believe in the report. Why should I believe? Why should I believe this Jesus stuff? Why don't I, why do I believe in Jesus at all? Why do I trust him day by day? Or do I trust him today? Should I believe the report? And how committed should I be to this report? And why should I believe? I don't like religious people anyway. I hate religious people. I don't believe in Jesus because the church is all about hypocrites, right? And, and we, we, we talk about this all the time. There's a lot of hypocrites in the, in the church. And that's a good argument. And by the way, non-Christians use it all the time. Let's say you're on a boat. And they make some incredible ships these days. And someone says to you, hey, you know, the boat's sinking. And you kind of feel something. You know, there's something that kind of gives you this inclination that there's something's going on. And you look at this person and you walk up to him and says, yeah, but I've watched you. You're such a hypocrite. I'm not going to believe you that the boat is sinking. No, you don't do that. You're going to find a way. You don't care what his lifestyle is. You don't care how sincere he is. You don't need to know if he's the worst cheater or the worst person in the world. You're going to find yourself a way to get off that boat. You're going to find some way, any way, to get off that sinking boat. And you don't care about the integrity of anybody else. The second part of the verse says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, you've heard about this guy, Jesus? Have you heard about this? I would imagine everybody in here has heard about this Jesus. And if you have a genuine concern about those who never heard, you're going to say, well, I need to tell people about this Jesus. But you don't say, well, I'm just going to leave it up to God. I'm not going to worry about it. If he wants them to, 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 to believe, he'll take care of that. And so I don't have to believe in God. I don't have to tell people about God because... Because, people, because God's unfair if they haven't heard. Well, God isn't going to be unfair. Anything that he does. Uh, I always quote the passage uh, in Genesis where Abraham is conflicted about what God is going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he questions God. He says, will not the God of the universe do what's right? And the answer is yes. You may not be able to understand how God's going to deal with the pagans in the, the darkest part of the world. But let me tell you this. God will always do what's right. I don't know about God, I don't know about Jesus, but I must make sure that, that I don't let my excuses or things I can't understand about God keep me from knowing God. I've got to put aside those things that I don't understand and I need to press forward. There are things that I won't even like. And we've talked about hell 
I don't like hell. I hate hell. I think it's a terrible idea. I like the Seventh-day Adventist view of hell where people just, when they die, they just cease to exist if they're non-believers. I like that. Whether it's true, I have no idea. I don't think it's true. But there's things that I don't like. And, but that doesn't keep me from trusting God. There's a lot of things I don't understand. And if I could understand everything, guess what? I'd, I'd be God. But I can't. That won't change my responsibility and, and God will say, well, you didn't understand this, right? You were, And I listen to people give these excuses all the time. I say, well, you don't understand. And God will say, why did, you, why did you not trust me for things you didn't understand? Why didn't you just say, hey, I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust you anyway? So anyway, then Isaiah paints this picture of the Messiah. For he grew up before him like a, a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground. You kind of just think of this terrible world, and here's this tender this tender person comes up out of all the bad stuff in the world here comes Jesus this tender shoot he's soft loving in a hard world there's no form or majesty that we should that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him was Jesus a handsome guy we talk about the beauty of the Lord but I think when they looked at Jesus they didn't look at his outward appearance they saw the nature of God they saw God manifest in the flesh um, wait a minute didn't we sing a song about that? Emmanuel, what is that? God with us. God with us. They saw his nature. They saw, they didn't look at his, say, wow, those genes didn't do you very well. They saw the, the nature of God in him. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. There's a serious guy, and he was serious about God, and we don't like to be around people who are serious about God. Really? That's true. Many of us are that way. We, un we feel uncomfortable because what do they do? This, their very presence, they condemn us. They're the light, and when they, when, when they live this, this life of light, we see the darkness in our own lives. We're uncomfortable, and we were so uncomfortable and we would have been, us personally, been so uncomfortable if we lived in the first century, we too would have put Jesus on the cross because that's what religious people do. Jesus made me very comfortable about religious people until one day I saw my need, the Savior, and I turned to him, and then all of a sudden everything changed. My saw the church in a different way. I saw God in a different way. Surely he bore, has borne our griefs, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. He was, took our punishment. He took my punishment, he was beaten for me. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity, that's the sin of each one of us, to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth. We read the story, we've read the story where Jesus was before Pilate and he, he wouldn't defend himself. Like a lamb is, to, is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. 
So there he was bearing my sadness and my sin, my depression, because I'm a sinful person. And I knew I was, something was wrong. Didn't know exactly what it was. I knew there was something missing in my life. I knew that I was a sinner. I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't have the power to, even if I knew how to fix it, I didn't have the power to fix it. I hear all the time about athletes, great athletes. You ever, people, you ever, you ever, you ever listen to the stories of athletes on, on sports talk radio or any of those things? And they'll say, yeah, this guy's not very good. Do you realize what it takes to be an athlete, uh, to be a pro athlete? You have to be, I don't care what your batting average is or whatever, you, you have to be the top people in the world to, be, to play on the NBA or uh, NFL or, or basketball. You've got to be great. But a baseball, what's a good batting average? Oh, what's a good batting average? You bat 300? Does anybody know what those, that 300 means? It's 300, it's .300 or 3. Are you batting in the 300s? You're a great basketball player. Thank See if anybody was listening. Yeah. Wake up. Baseball player. But let me ask you a question. So that means a third of the time you get it right. If you're in school, who's still in school? You're still in school. What happens if you get a, a 33% on your test? What grade is that? It, what? It isn't passing. It's failing. You can be the best athlete in the world, and if you're only batting 300, is amazing. And if you're batting that, you're a failure. Because the world grades on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. If you're a quarterback and you complete 75% of your passes, what's that in school? Average, C, because people are amazed how well they perform. People set records because they're only comparing themselves to someone else. So we, the harder we train spiritually, we might not get as far as they do. What we need is two things. And you know what they are. Mercy. God, I'm, I'm such a failure. I need your mercy. What I need is not to get what I deserve. I don't want a failing grade. What does God give you? What does he give you? He says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You need not to be with me in eternity because you're such a a sinner. The second thing you need is grace. Something. What is grace? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so what does God do? He makes us a, a most valuable player, MVP. That's what he does. Something that we don't deserve. He gives, he makes us perfect in his sight. He forgives us all our sins. We are perfect in his sights. We are completely saved. He makes us fit for heaven. The problem is, just like real life, sin has consequences. I hate those consequences. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. He was beaten 
and God caused the iniquity of us all. I'm going to read that slower. This is that last part of verse 6. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall in him. God sent Jesus into the world to pay our debt. He canceled out my debt. He declares me righteous. He declares me sinless in the court of God because Jesus was punished and bruised for me. Now I can grow and do what God wants me to do. That would be nice. Knowing that I've been given what I don't deserve. And that make, should make me understanding of everyone around me. It should make me understand that they are flawed just like me. And I need to help them find a way to the one who is able to forgive and make our life of value and help me to learn how to quit messing up which keeps destroying my life. Why do I keep messing up? Because somehow I think that God, I, somehow I think that the world has more fun than we do. It's like that passage we read in Proverbs, oh, you know, stolen pleasures is sweet. Is it really? For a minute, for a time. And then what comes? The sadness, the depression. Philippians says this. Paul says this to the Philippians. Now that I've already, not that I've already obtained it or having already become perfect, but I press on so that I might lay hold of that which I was also laid hold of by Jesus. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting the past, forgetting what is behind, and that could be religion, could be Phariseeism, or it could be your sinful, since former sinful life, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. All because of this baby who we weren't ready for. And we are so grateful that God did the unexpected in our lives. And let me say this. God isn't finished with you yet. He's a lot of good, great, wonderful things to do in your life. And when you're done with your mission, when you're done with, and I don't care what the state is at the, the last days of your life, it doesn't make any difference. God still has going to make you useful and fruitful until the day you go home. Father, I want to thank you for for the offer of salvation. And I also want to thank you for giving just not only the forgiveness of sins, but the confidence that we can have because you recorded all this stuff for us in the ancient scriptures. And this isn't just a, a pipe dream, but it is, a, it is prophecies that were fulfilled that any reasonable person would say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. This isn't a made-up religion in the first century. This is what you've been telling people about, even though they didn't understand it, for thousands of years. 
thank you for the evidence. Thank you for the redemption. Thank you for the new heart, the new life, the new mind, a new way to think, a new way to live. I pray in Jesus' name.